Before we get started this morning, I want to uh, mention a couple of things. First of all, uh, the flowers in the altar table are there for a reason. If you look at them very closely and then you will look at our wedding photograph, uh, the flowers are just a larger duplication of the bouquet that Sharon uh, carried down the aisle when she married me 40 years ago. We were just kids. I was just a young punk. Now I'm an old punk. <laughs> but she still married me. That was 40 years ago. And I, I did this to honor the person. That is Sharon, the wife of your pastor. There's no way I could have done what I've been able to do through 40 years in the ministry without her by my side. Neither of us knew what we were in for. I didn't know what it would take to pastor a church. I just knew God had called me to preach. had no idea what it would involve. It involves a lot of things that you just never even dream of. Then there's the position. That is the pastor's wife. Now there's the person, the wife of your pastor. Then there's position, pastor's wife. Pastor's wife is unpublished. You will not find it on the list of officers and teachers every year. But, oh, it's a real position. Every church has the position. And every church has expectations of pastor's wife. And it comes with a wide range of job descriptions. Now, early on, out of necessity, Sharon stepped into this position of pastor's wife of Brister Baptist Church. And because we were so small then... There were a lot of things just had to be done that she just stepped in to help me to do. You see, pastor's wife is a built-in secretary for the pastor. It's not easy to be my secretary because I can't organize anything. And she was, of course, in charge of helping to organize some things. And a lot of people have asked through the years, well, do you have a church secretary? And I say, well, yes, it falls under the description of pastor's wife. She takes care of that, but also she's the secretary of the church. You have a bulletin in your hand. Some of you are reading it. Some of you are fanning with it, but you have a bulletin in your hand. We do this every single week. Every single week, Sharon's the one that types the bulletin. We did this out of necessity. Just We do this out of love. And up till now, you do the math, the bulletins that she's typed for Brister Baptist Church uh, now tops 1,950 bulletins that she's typed. If you average a little over 100 copies, she's handled 200,000 pieces of paper, folded them, and had them. Now, let me tell you about the first seven and a half years that we were here. Right now, we put a piece of paper in the copier. It spins the paper through, and this starts spitting out copies. When we came to Brister 39 years ago this month, we had the old crank mimograph machine. Now, I'll tell you what it was. It was a stencil, like a piece of film. And you typed it on the typewriter, and it would cut holes in that stencil. And you'd have to cut the stencil in half because it was made to be, of course, like a piece of legal sheet. Well, the bulletin reads otherwise, doesn't it? You would cut that in half, type each half of the bulletin, glue it back together. And if you made a mistake, you had to get like fingernail polish. It was blue. And then you'd, you'd make the mistake right, and then you'd cut it back in. It was a tedious process. Sharon knew how to do that. Your pastor didn't, but Sharon knew how to do that because she had worked in the office. Then you'd have to squirt ink out of a tube 
into the machine and it would pump it out on a piece of fabric that was on a drum. Lay that piece of plastic or whatever it was on that drum and crank the bulletins out by hand. Kashoom, kashoom, kashoom. Seven and a half years because we did not want to burden the church with the expense of a copier. We moved back to Gurdon for our little 18-month odyssey at Gurdon. And when we came back, we found out nobody knew how to run that machine, obviously, because you had a copier after that. So things got a lot easier. But still, I think, of course, that we realized that over almost 2,000 bulletins have been typed and all because of pastor's wife in the time that we've been here. We uh, celebrated our first year anniversary unpacking boxes in that little house there. And uh, she, of course, stepped into the role of girls auxiliary leader. You remember that? Some of you girls were the, some of you ladies that have teenagers <coughs> were in that. She was my youth director for a long time. She was my youth director and camp counselor for girls for a long time because other people couldn't go. Everybody had jobs. She was camp counselor when our kids were toddlers, took them to camp. She was youth choir director. Some of y'all remember the youth choir? Youth choir director. She was director of various Christmas plays through the year and organizer of church camp lists, shower lists, care team lists, cookbook church directory, and various sorted projects and programs. She, of course, is a built-in wedding director. Uh, lots of girls, when they would come and talk to me and we would be talking about the, uh, the wedding and so forth, I'd say, well, have you got a wedding director? They said, will Miss Sharon do it? I'm sure she did it. She was the uh, traffic controller of the wedding. I would take care of things up here and she would send them down from the vestibule. And, of course, that was quite a trick in the little church. You know, we didn't have much room for everybody to get together. Uh, about 20-something years ago, uh, the package deal got a little bit better. Sharon got a nurse's degree and, of course, is a registered nurse. So now, Bristol Baptist Church has a built-in medical consultant. Because <laughs> lots of people trust Sharon. And they'll call. Let me tell you the things that I've seen. And it's, they're usually treated right there in our kitchen by the table. Cuts, splinters, fish hooks, rashes of all kinds on kids, Shots, blood pressure. She's pulled, I don't know how many teeth, but she's the medical consultant and people will call. Even sometimes some of the nurses in the church will call her because they trust her. But then again, when it comes down to the ministry part of it, she's a comforter and counselor at all hours and in all places. I can't count how many times she's prayed with somebody on the phone at how whatever kind of hour because you know what? Heartbreak doesn't keep a schedule. And whenever there's heartbreak, then you meet the need. And she did that at all times. She does all of that because she accepted the call into the ministry just as I have. Now, she knew that I was a preacher when she married me, so she knew what she was signing on for, kind of. But I don't think anybody could ever dream what pastor's wife, the position, involves. And let me tell you this. She does it not because she feels like she has to. Sharon does this because she loves you really more than your pastor does. 
She loves you more than your pastor does. It's sometimes. And here's the thing. The flowers in the altar area are in honor of the lady that has stepped into this role for Bristol Baptist Church and I think has done an excellent job as pastor's wife for you. Happy anniversary, Sharon. Now turn to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11. <clears throat> and while you're turning, I would say that nobody has an idea of what it takes to uh, be a camp counselor. But I have a lot of people in the church that since Sharon was, uh, was you know, has, has handed it off to various people and more people have stepped up to be camp counselor, have done a great job. And I want to say that uh, I really uh, appreciate, of course, Jessica and Aaron for being my girls' camp counselor this week as we carried kids to camp. We carried our first group of Brister kids to church camp in 1981. I've uh, been carrying kids to camp ever since. I think I've missed about four uh, or five or so since then. Uh, but various ladies have stepped in to be camp sponsors. And you know how it is when you go to be a camp sponsor. You kind of know what it involves, but you have no idea till you get there. There's a lot involved. And I want to say thank you to Aaron and Jessica and also to all of you who have invested your time to go to camp. We did that this week. I had more fun than all of our kids put together, I believe. I love taking kids to church camp. I had six boys. They were excellent. They had a lot of fun. They were a bundle of energy. I'm serious, a bundle of energy <laughs> up until time for the lights to be out. But, but, but man, they, when lights were out, everybody behaved. Everybody went to sleep. Everybody was great. And uh, I appreciate, of course, all your hard work. It's taking kids to conferences like Soren, taking kids to church camp involves a lot of work behind the scenes and a whole lot of work when you go. It is nonstop. And here's my philosophy for anybody, of course, that goes to Soar and goes to church camp. This is the number one philosophy of youth work. Listen closely. You can sleep at home. You ain't sleeping here. And they all... Do it very well. Thank you for what you do. Luke chapter 11, beginning in verse 1, would you stand as the scriptures read, please? Now it came to pass, as he was praying, in a certain place, when he ceased, that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. So he said to them, when you pray, say, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And he said to them, Which of you shall have a friend? And go to him at midnight, and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has come to me on his journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within and say, Do not trouble me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give to you. I say to you, though he will not rise and give to him because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will rise and give him as many as he needs. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened unto you. 
For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and he who knocks, it will be opened. If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Let's pray together, please. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what your word tells us about us, and especially what your word tells us about you. Help us as we look at this parable to get the meaning of it. And then, Father... We ask that we would respond to this meaning because you have something personal for each one of us here. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. I want you to look at the parable, and they call this the parable of the friend at midnight. Well, actually, there's three friends involved in the parable. And as we look at this, we might say, Jesus He had to be reaching for this illustration because this situation seems unlikely and even ridiculous that a friend would come to your house at midnight, knock on your door, and ask for bread. Now you say, wait a minute, that's absolutely ridiculous. That would never, ever happen. Can't understand why he would use that parable. Well, by today's cultural standards, that is correct. But the story was very believable, and even possible, and most likely had happened at the place and time in which Jesus preached. Because here's the scenario. Travelers often would try to get their traveling done by dusk. But sometimes they would choose to travel at night due to the heat. And there would be time at dusk there was nowhere to stop. You're in between. And because of the heat and because of the demands of foot travel at that time, many times they would be at midnight before they reached their destination. There was no way to give an advance notice. I mean, right now you would just be texting, boop, 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 boop. I'm on my way, see you at midnight, boop, hit send, and everybody knows what you're doing. I didn't have that then. They didn't have a post office. So you wouldn't even be able to drop them a card, see you at midnight or whatever. And bread was only made enough for each day. And here's the reason why. There were no preservatives. And the bread was more like a flat bread. Uh, When we talk about loaves, it's not talking about the big loaf of wonder bread like we have. It was like flat bread. And a family would only make as much bread as they anticipated needing for that day simply because it would get stale and even mold in the hot, humid temperature before the next day. And those of you who have made homemade bread and so forth would see that a lot of times you try to put it up and keep it for two or three days. It's going to mold a lot more because there's no preservatives in there. Now, the traveler comes at midnight and there's no bread in the house. No problem, you might say. The little lady of the house, she's going to get up early in the morning. She'll make a fresh batch. You can eat then. Oh, no, no. You see, the cultural expectations complicated everything. Hospitality was sacred. The cultural expectations, the self-imposed pressure 
It would be a social disgrace. It would be a personal insult if your guests came at midnight and you did not present a meal before him. And not just any meal, but more than enough. That's why he asked for three loaves. Probably one might be enough if it is single traveler, but you had to present an ample meal. You might say, well, that's just so ridiculous. Well, a lot of times our self-imposed expectations are, but it was so very real. It was unthinkable. It was non-negotiable. You could not tell him, you go ahead and go to bed, we'll have something in the morning. It was sacred duty, and they would be insulted if they didn't present a meal before them. And then you have the other end of the spectrum. He had to go to his friend's house and knock on the door. Now the common Jewish house was a one-room house. And in that house you had a common living area. In the back of the house, raised up like a little stage area, in the back of the house, about one-third of the house, was the bedroom. There was no partition. It was just raised up. And on that partition, you would have a small charcoal stove and mats would be laid around and everybody in the household, husband, wife, kids, servants, would lay in that area. Now, in the front area that was on floor level, you'd bring your animals in. You'd bring your animals in, the chickens and the goats and everything, because you didn't want robbers to get them. They didn't have, a lot of times, a lot of room. So we picture the scenario. You have everybody in bed and all the animals in front and then the door was shut. Common Jewish household, when you woke up in the morning, you opened your door up and it stayed open all day long. Anybody that wanted to would come and go. There was no such thing as privacy. It was just one big public village. You just walk into people's houses and so forth off of the street because you could see right in there's one room and the door would stay open. But now if you wanted privacy, you would shut the door. And after you shut the door, especially at night, you would put a big heavy beam on the inside of it to keep people, of course, from breaking in. So now get the scenario. It's midnight. Now, around here, midnight may not mean much, but when you don't have electric lights and the light and the sun goes down, there's nothing else to do but go to bed. I mean, that, that was all there was. You let us lose electricity around here for two or three days, and then it gets dark and you think, there's nothing to do when the lights go out, is there? I mean, they would, so at midnight, they've been in bed a long time. Mama, daddy, kids, all in bed. And between me and the front door, my chickens and my goats. Now can you see why the guy in bed said, go away. I don't have anything to give you. So you see what happens here is this seems to be totally illogical for us. And you might say, is there anything that applies to my life in this particular scenario? They lived like we would never live here. Actually, we have a lot in common here. Let me tell you exactly what's going on. First of all, a man found himself with a need that was greater than his resources. He had a need and he couldn't meet it. He just didn't have it. Just didn't have it. He didn't have an answer for his problem. You ever been there? You ever had a problem 
a need, a circumstance, and you just don't have the physical resources or the solution ready. Then, of course, not only was it a physical need, it was just been that simple. It was, the, the simple thing here is the fact that he didn't have any bread. Then there's the relationship issue. And that complicated everything. Let me tell you how complicated it is. Guy's laying in bed. He's asleep. His wife and kids with him. Chicken and goats in there. Nice night. All of a sudden, somebody's knocking at the door. Somebody's knocking at the door and saying, hey, hey, I got to have three loaves of bread. Excuse me? Yeah, hey, go away. I don't have it. My wife, kids are in bed. I'm not giving it to you. What? I got to have some bread. I'm telling you, I'm already in bed, and the kids are with me, the wife's with me, they got chicken and goats in there, the door's already shut, it's already locked. Man, do you realize you're killing me here? What? And finally, he gets up. Now, I'm laying there in bed, and you know why I've got this problem? Because some traveler came into town at midnight. How does it get this complicated? That all of a sudden, his problem becomes his problem. Now it's my problem. And I can't sleep. The kids are already woke up. The chickens are already stirring around. The goats are already woke Our whole house is awake. And he says, finally, all right, if I'm going to get any sleep, I've got to give this guy's bread. All right. So he gives the guy the bread and says, go away. Don't bother me anymore. He's up for the rest of the night. He says, how did my life get this complicated that because of somebody else down the road, a hundred miles away, now I'm awake. The kids are awake. Won't get any sleep. The chickens are awake. They're running around. The goats. Isn't that how life gets sometimes when it comes to relationships? All of a sudden you're thinking, how things get this complicated? You see, when it comes to relationships, man, things get tangled up in a hurry, can't they? And all of a sudden you have what we call a situation. So now we realize this parable is not that far out of our realm of experience, is it? Secondly, the problem arose as a result of trying to do the right thing. All he wanted to do is the right thing. And he had a problem, not despite the, the, the uh, fact that he wanted to do the right thing, but because he wanted to do the right thing. Here's a myth that people are buying into. It's a myth. It, it's totally false. And here's the myth, that when we decide to serve the Lord, it's going to be easy and free. And it gets even worse than that. When we decide to serve the Lord, He's going to make us rich. You heard that? Sure you have. It's all over the television. You'll see it everywhere. That absolutely is false. Sometimes doing the right thing will cost us. Sometimes it will cost us to do the right thing. Jesus said it this way in Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That does not sound cheap, easy, or free. In fact, it sounds like it will cost us. And so many times, people will opt out of doing the right things because it will cost them in one way or another. It may cost them financially. You know, a, a, a remark that I've heard, 
you know, the government's going to make a thief out of an honest guy. In other words, because taxes are high, I am excused for doing something dishonest to get out of it. You see, sometimes doing the right thing and being honest will cost us. But what's more precious to us? Our integrity, our moral obligation to the Lord, or money? we got to make that decision, and we do make that decision. Sometimes doing the right thing will cost us time, effort, money, energy. And this guy found himself in a situation where he has to get up, go down the street, bother his friend, simply because he just wanted to do the right thing. And the right thing, of course, according to his self-imposed pressure, is to provide hospitality for the guy who had come in. But we read this passage of scripture in and around the other episodes simply because this is about prayer. This is all the same discussion as a result of the question, Lord, teach us to pray like John taught his disciples. Every rabbi would have a prayer, a simple prayer that he would word for his disciples to be able to pray, to teach them about prayer. And Jesus, of course, gave us what we call the Lord's Prayer. The expanded version is found in the book of Matthew. If you're wondering, I thought there was more to it than that. There is, and that's in the book of Matthew. But this is, of course, what's listed here. Then, of course, Jesus keeps on talking about, I say to you, ask and it will be given, seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened unto you. He's talking about prayer. And right in the middle of prayer, he gives us, This parable about the ridiculous situation of a friend knocking on his other friend's door at midnight, waking him up, and what he wants is three loaves of bread. What what do we learn here about prayer? First of all, when we pray, we should be honest and specific and sincere about our needs. Now, notice what did not happen. Hey, who is this? Hey, I got a problem here. You need to help me. That's not what he said. He said, I need three loaves of bread. And when we pray to God, we need to be specific and sincere about our needs. If we've goofed up and the situation's because we really messed up, we need to be honest about that. We need to be honest about the fact that it may be a complicated thing with relationships. And we need to be honest about the fact and be specific about the fact, I have a problem here and I don't know how to solve it. But that's exactly what Jesus wanted us to learn from this parable. Be specific and honest about what we need. Secondly, be diligent to pursue the right thing. Now this is all about prayer. And what does Jesus say in what we call the Lord's Prayer? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's all talking about doing God's will, doing the right thing. And he came to his friend and presented his case before his friend because he really wanted to do the right thing. And it all depends on what our motives are. When we come to God and we really want to do the right thing in a situation, We really want to do the right thing in a circumstance that sometimes we've gotten ourselves into. God is all ears about that prayer. And a lot of times people will say, 
Brother Eric, I, I just want to know God's will, and, and, and I don't know God's will, and I want to pray about it, but this is the way you approach that. When we ask for God to show his will to us so we can decide whether or not we want to do it, God is not interested in that prayer. But if we're willing to go to God and say, God, I will do whatever you ask me to do. I just want to know what your will is. God is interested. You say, well, I, I, I don't, that's, that's kind of tough to pray because I don't know what God wants me to do. Bingo. But all of a sudden we're saying some of God's will acceptable to us. Some of it we will find, of course, that we want to do, and then some of it is negotiable. If we come to God and we're holding out, and we're not willing to do anything and everything to please God, and then we pray to God and ask Him to show us His will or ask, us, ask Him for, of course, help in a situation, can you blame God for not really being interested? God is all interested when we're willing to say, I really want to do the right thing here. Please provide for that and show me how to do it. And the message of the parable can be kind of confusing here. Because there's a lot of parables. Jesus will say, the kingdom of heaven is like this. God is like this. Then we read this parable and we get this grumpy guy in the middle of bed. And the guy has to keep on asking in order to get what he wants. Now we might say, wait a minute. Is that what God is like? That we got to keep on knocking? Keep on asking? And, and finally, he's, he's grumbling and complaining and gets up? Absolutely not. And see, the key to this is found a little bit later on when Jesus talks about a father and he says, How much more? How much more? The message of the parable is not that God is like the grumpy guy at midnight that finally shoves the bread out the door. The message of the parable is God is totally unlike this guy. The contrast. God is the exact opposite of this guy. But what he's saying is, the friend at midnight had his request answered by a grumpy friend that didn't want to be woken up. How much more will God listen to us? Let me tell you the difference. First of all, what had to happen before he could talk to his friend? Well... He had to wake him up, right? Did I just hear somebody knocking at the door? Finally, he had to wake him up. Here's the thing about God. God never sleeps. In the book of Psalms 121, very familiar prayer of David. In the 121st Psalm, David says this, I will lift up my eyes to the hills from whence cometh my help. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel neither slumber nor sleep. God never sleeps. You never have to worry about waking him up or getting his attention. Also, we understand God hears from the very start. What had to happen before this guy would answer the friend's request? Well, he had to get his attention. Then he had to get his attention again. Then he had to get his attention again. He had to tell him over and over again. 
The word, I think the King James says, Jesus says, because of his importunity, that means shameless persistence. I mean, he had no shame. He's banging on his door. He says, I got a problem, and it's your problem now. It's exactly what he said. He said, how did this become my problem? Well, I just made it your problem. He was shameless, but he had to get his attention over and over again. Well, here's the promise how God is not like the householder asleep in bed. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 65, verse 24, it shall come to pass before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. Now that's quick. Jesus said it this way. Your father knoweth that you have need of these things before you ask him. God is not anything like this householder. But the man got his request fulfilled even with a reluctant, asleep, unhappy, grumpy householder. And Jesus says, how much more? How much more? You see, it teaches that this man got what he needed from a very imperfect friend. Well, up to that point, he was his friend. I don't know about after that. How much more can we expect God to give us what we really need, who is absolutely perfect, never sleeps, hears from the start, loves us, and wants to give us what we need? Now, you may be here and saying, you know, this doesn't really apply to me because I'm I'm not in the big midst of a, a problem I don't have an answer to. You see, this... The whole idea is the friend at midnight had a need that was greater than his resources. Oh, but we all do. We all do. The need that we have that's greater than our resources, salvation. We do not have the human capacity to be saved on our own. The Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We don't have the righteousness to get into heaven. The common idea is, all right, you spend all your life, you do some good things, oh, you're going to do a few bad things over here, and you get on uh, up to the pearly gates. Simon Peter comes to the pearly gates. He looks out, says, hey, why, why should I let you in here? Well, I wasn't that bad. And he says, let's just take a look. So they're going to add up all the good stuff that you do and all the bad stuff that you do, and if the good stuff outweighs the bad stuff, bingo, you're in. False. Our sins disqualified us from heaven from the start. There is not enough good we can do to get to heaven. Period. Period. We have a need that's beyond our ability to solve. But God says this, the book of Romans chapter 5, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us and because of that there is that one that can take care of the needs that we ourselves could never solve so we're all in this situation have you taken care of that or are you still hoping maybe the good stuff outweighs the bad stuff that won't happen we're totally disqualified but Jesus said let me take that sin stain 
and now you're qualified from heaven for heaven. I can do that for you. You can't do it by yourself. But maybe you do relate to this parable. And I don't know what might be going on in your life. There's an issue you got to have some answers to. Maybe it's a complicated personal relationship issue. Relationships are complicated for us. Nothing's complicated for God. And maybe you need to be praying about some things. Maybe you've been struggling with doing the right thing with the situation. Let me tell you, it may cost, but doing the right thing is always worth it. And don't back off of the right thing just because it's going to cost you. Because sometimes it will take a high cost to do the right thing. But what's more important, pleasing God or a little bit of inconvenience or cost? We'll answer that question based on our decision when these situations come. Whatever need you have, make it right as we stand and sing. Number 121.